Hi listeners, it's Mike. I'm excited to present this short introductory episode featuring Richard Kutcher and his Global Captive podcast. You may know Richard as the former editor of Captive Review magazine. Each week, Richard features captive industry leaders from all aspects of the industry, including advisors, managers, and owners of captives throughout the world. So if you have an interest in captives and want to be plugged into that segment of the market, then you're sure to enjoy this episode, and I would encourage you to listen to Richard Kutcher's Global Captive Podcast. Thanks for listening, and please be sure to leave a review, like, subscribe, and share the show with your network. Hope to see you all in person soon. I'm uh, joined today by Richard Kutcher, who is the executive producer of the Global Captive Podcast. And I wanted to uh, introduce Richard to uh, my audience because he has a podcast that appeals to similar folks in the risk management community worldwide, actually. And Richard, welcome to the show. Cheers, Mike. It's a pleasure to be on. Great, great. Well, you know, as you and I have talked, we uh, we seem to share uh, a lot of common interests in the risk management profession and the insurance industry overall. And, you know, listening to your podcast, uh, you've had, you know, quite a following and uh, and quite interesting in terms of your focus on captives and seeing as the uh, the industry that we're in is a hard market situation. Uh, I figure there's a lot of interest in captives. So I thought it would be great for us to kind of cross-pollinate uh, with our shows. And I uh, just wanted to maybe uh, get a little rundown of how it is you uh, got into the captive business. Yeah, cheers, Mike. We've been fretting and doing this for a while, haven't we? And we've been in contact with each other actually for, for four or five years back from when I used to live and work in New York. And I, uh, yeah, I, I'm a journalist by trade originally. I kind of, I studied history at university. I actually ended up being a, a football mascot for my football team for a year, which is a, a different discussion for another day. But that probably gives you a, a kind of indication of I kind of, uh, I quite like to perform and, and drama is kind of my thing. And I like talking, I quite enjoy the sound of my own voices. I'm sure you, you've come to realize it's important, Mike, doing, doing a podcast. And I got into, uh, I got into just local journalism out of university, for my local newspaper, the Reading Chronicle, and then the Windsor Observer from Windsor Castle, and then got into trade journalism through uh, moving to Cape Town in South Africa. I covered the African technology sector. And that was my first introduction to to trade kind of publications and b2b and that's when i came in contact with a company called pageant media who produced a captive review magazine and i was editor of captive review magazine for five years so when i came to that magazine in about 2014 that was captives was a whole new world to me and even corporate insurance was a whole new world to me but i picked it up pretty quickly and found that i really enjoyed the people in the industry i really enjoyed the topic i found captive insurance fascinating simply because it wasn't for me that much about insurance. It was about some of the biggest companies in the world and their strategies to manage their risk. And of course, Captive is a big part of that, as, as you, you and your listeners will know. So I got into Captive Review for five years, loved my time there. I think Pageant Media is a great company. It gave me the opportunity to live in New York for a couple of years, which is when when we met. I then joined Airmic. Uh, Airmic uh, is the UK equivalent, if you will, of RIMS. So it's the Risk Management Association of the UK. I worked for them for a year in 2019, but I launched the Global Captive Podcast on the side as a hobby in March 2019, just as a way to me to keep in contact with all the great captive insurance contacts I'd made over the years in America, across Europe and in Asia as well, and even in South Africa, a country that I'm very fond of. And I just started releasing episodes every two weeks where we'd have a different guest co-host every week, which was normally a, a big industry name. 
So people like Ellen Charnley from the Marsh Captive Solutions team or Stephen Bauman, who's now at AXA and, and some other large names and big names in Europe as well. And we always always had a captive, we always have a captive owner interview as well. So we always have the client on the cap on the podcast to talk about their captive and how they use it. It really grew in popularity. And by the end of last year, it became apparent I could run it as a full-time business. So I still do some work for Emic uh, relating to their captive team and I run their podcast now and uh, emit their newsletter but the captive podcast now is my full-time venture and uh, it's i have to say it's a it's a lot of fun well that's really interesting so you uh you actually made a full-time venture out of this yeah yeah i think someone saw some that well a few people obviously saw some value in, in the podcast and what what we try and do is we it's not a news podcast so we not yet anyway so we don't do kind of regular news updates it's more thought leadership and just sharing people's insights because i think with captives both on the risk management side and on the service provider side what's often happens is let's say that you work at a big insurance company like an axa or a zurich Obviously, they're big companies of lots of staff, but the captive teams and the captive specialists can be quite small teams dotted around the world. And that's often the case of well, with a risk manager, the captive, although they often love it. And I think, as you and I know, Mike, sometimes risk managers treat the captive as you know, like they love them more than their own children sometimes. It can be quite, it can be quite a lonely job, I think. And uh, it's quite a unique role is kind of overseeing a captive, whether it's from the service provider side or the or the risk manager side. And I, I felt giving a platform which brought different cultures, attitudes toward captives together and had that kind of uh, allowed that and facilitated that debate was just a, a really nice way. And, and people have seen the value in it. So we've got some sponsors now which make it a viable business model. But the content in those every two week fortnightly episodes that we produce remains independent. And I really have on whoever I want to have on. So I'm looking forward to inviting you onto the podcast very soon, Mike. Awesome. Well, I definitely look forward to that moment. It sounds like, you know, uh, in just a very short time, you've got you've gotten your show off the ground and uh, and really developed it quite nicely. So congrats to you. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's been a lot of fun. So are you seeing, uh, by the way, um, through your uh, sessions and, and your contacts, are you seeing a greater interest in captives now due to the hardening of the market prior to COVID? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Prior to COVID, and I think we'll see some post-COVID as well. But I think the hardening market was is always a good time for the captive consultants and the captive managers because it just it just concentrates people's focus again a bit more and in a soft market it can become quite comfortable and quite easy to keep renewing your insurance at the rates that are being brought to you particularly if you've seen constant decrease in premiums but you know the best consultants and the best advice out there will always tell you that a captive you know isn't just for a hard market captives not just for the hard times, it really a captive policy should be and captive structure should be put in place in during the good times. Uh, so you're ready for the hard times. So we are seeing more interest in captives, particularly in America, the US market hasn't really seen much of a slowdown in captive formations. Most of the large companies do already have a captive. I think normally the stat around is about 97% of the Fortune 100 have a captive and that continues up to the kind of Fortune 1000 level. But America and the huge middle market it has has constantly seen growth in captives and as well as the use of group captives which is relatively unique to the US market but Europe we did we really did see a flattening of captive formations and even a decrease in the number of captives in Europe in the last 10 years uh, kind of as solvency 2 came in it really increased the cost of regulation and the cost uh, the, the amount of capital needed to run a big captive but as the hardening market started to hit in 2019 particularly we haven't really seen it reflected in the captive formation numbers in Europe yet, but the number of 
formations in the pipeline as, as our consultants would like to say and the feasibility work has certainly ramped up um so i i'm expecting uh, 2020 to be quite a big formation year for captives because in europe they do take quite a long time to be formed in the us it can be a lot quicker i think you know two to three months is possible in the us for a captive but in in europe it's more of a nine month to 12 month job so i'm hoping we're going to see a, a quite a bit of formation activity at the back end of, of 2020 yeah, well, it certainly seemed to make sense. And uh, it is interesting for me to hear about how uh, captives are utilized differently in different parts of the world. Uh, I would imagine that uh, European captives may have some uh, slightly different strategies and goals in mind, although ultimately it's it's all about managing your insurance budgets as efficiently as possible, right? Yeah, of course. And I think I think the main... The main difference between the European and the US markets, for example, is not so much how they're used, but kind of the types of companies that use them. So as I said, the the US mid-market has got has kind of really embraced captives, and that's because of numerous things. One is the group captive availability, but also the 831B tax selection, which is obviously quite a controversial tax selection in the captive world. And most of your clients probably won't need to use that because they tend to work, as I understand, for much larger companies but in europe there's no there's not many middle market companies that utilize a captive you need a higher amount of premium on average really to form a captive in europe because it's just a bit more expensive so you need a, a more scale i mean i think the the other main difference would be in the us of course workers compensation is a huge line of insurance and a very regular line of insurance which goes through captives in europe we don't really have the same culture around workers compensation so workers compensation isn't such a driver for captives but we are seeing in europe maybe a bit more than in the us a huge move towards international employee benefits programs being put into a captive and i think that's really interesting on, on kind of your topic of expertise mike because employee benefits and having employee benefits into a captive brings a whole new skill set to the risk insurance manager obviously they need to work closely with hr closely with their global benefits managers to put those programs in place but there we're really seeing a diversification in the use of captives in europe and and by the americans as well in bringing kind of life risks into the captive as well as the traditional non-life risks yeah, no, that's uh, that's great to hear, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely hearing about that as well here in the states. You know, uh, I was thinking about you know different ways that I'm hearing about companies utilizing a captive employee benefit. Certainly, is one of them. I've also thought that a lot of companies, larger companies, will put their property program in a captive. And in the states here, you know, you, you, by doing that, you get the TRIA backstop with that. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got a similar pool in the UK called Pool Re, which is uh, it's, it's one a little bit different to the to the US uh, TRIA program. But in the same way, a captive insurance company, if it's insuring uh, UK based risks, then it can access uh, Pool Re as, as their own kind of reinsurance backstop as well. So we're seeing we're seeing if you go to the Pool Re website, it actually has a list of all the members of Pool Re. And you'll see lots of insurance. If you don't recognize the name, of the insurance company immediately is a good chance it's probably a captive owned by the likes of Heathrow Airport or the airlines or, or property lots of property real estate companies obviously have captives in Guernsey and Isle of Man and they access Paul Rea as well as their backstop so that's something we see a lot of and I think on, on the topic of the kind of terrorism pools, it's interesting and one I've not really quite got to the bottom of but I'm, what I've always wanted to know is how easy it is for a captive if it's a, a multinational owned captive of risks all around the world or, sorry insuring risks all around the world and it's domiciled in guernsey for example of course it can access pool re for its uk risks it can probably access the french equivalent uh Garriott, i believe it's called for its french risks but tria as i understand it is only accessed by us insurance companies so even if the parent of the captive has got 
US risk, if the insurance company isn't in, or the captive isn't in the US, it's not going to access that backstop. So there's obviously differences between those. They've got to be navigated. But I think on the on the backstop topic as well, Mike, I believe we're hearing quite a bit of conversation in the US at the moment about a kind of a, a pandemic equivalent to TRIA. That may well be something attractive to, to captives in the future if they can access a, a PRIA equivalent, a pandemic equivalent backstop for, for future crisis that we such as the one we find ourselves in today. Yeah, no, that's a very good point about PRIA because uh, there is a lot of discussion going on here in the States about that. And to me, I mean, just my own personal opinion, I could totally see that happening and I think it needs to happen. And and I would be surprised if it doesn't happen, frankly, because we've just witnessed and we're still witnessing, you know, the impact of a pandemic and, uh, and there has to be some coverage or, you know, uh, we can't go through this very often, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think and I think Marsh have been talking about this recently, but they see that as a if it was to go ahead, if, if Priya was become a thing and it was kind of mandated, then that would be another another very good reason for a company to consider having a captive, just like Tria has often prompted formations of captives. It is the only way to access that backstop directly if you've got a captive, because that captive, of course, is an insurance company, it can access Tria. So Priya would be another reason why a captive will be only increase in value uh, in the kind of the post coronavirus and then uh, in a hardening market. Yep, definitely, definitely. So you brought up a couple of interesting points, which uh, raised a couple of questions for me. And you know, while I, I do not claim to be a captive expert by any stretch, it, it does occur to me that you know when you have a multinational company that has operations around the world, you know, given what you were explaining about how, you know, depending on where the insurance company is located and perhaps where the operations are located, it accesses different points of support. Does a company, does a big multinational company typically have multiple captives for different parts of the world like that? Is that a common? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen a slight reduction in, in that approach, uh, mainly because what we've seen happen is through multiple kind of merger and acquisition activity at, at corporate level, what often happens is large companies can inherit four or five captives and they don't need to have four or five captives. So there's a great example of a large cement company uh, in Germany uh, it bought uh, or it merged with a large French cement company. And they ended up, I think, with about six captives, uh, Some, a couple in Europe, uh, a couple in the States, a couple in some of the offshore island jurisdictions. And they've ended up consolidated those over a period of time. I think it took about a year or so into two entities, one as a European entity and one as a US captive. And I think maybe a third one in the offshore uh, jurisdictions as well. But the reason that they did that and the reason many large multinationals often will have a US captive and maybe a European one is that the US captive will give you access to, as I discussed, TRIA. You need to have a captive to access that. But also on the employee benefits issue, if you want to write US uh, Department of Labor, ERISA benefits, you need to have a US captive. You can't do that from an offshore captive. So having a US captive gives you that uh, advantage. In Europe, of course, uh, if you're a captive in the European Union, you can be a direct writing captive and direct and write direct policies across all of the EU. So you won't even need a fronting company to do that. There's some benefits still to being a reinsurance captive and, and using a fronting company to do all that for you. But obviously, if you do have that massive global footprint, there are benefits to having a couple of different captives in different regions or markets or economies to make it as efficient as possible. But there becomes a point, particularly if you're in Europe and uh, under Solvency 2, which is probably the, the strictest uh, regulatory regime for captives in the world or insurers in the world, and captives aren't discriminated against. Unfortunately, we'd love them to be carved out of Solvency 2, but they're not. It is a bit quite expensive operation to run a captive in Europe. So that, that takes a big decision. So there's definitely benefits to having a couple of captives, but the days of captives 
companies having four or five, I think, are probably behind us because the frictional costs have just increased so much in the last 10 or 15 years. Okay. Well, that all uh, it all sounds like great stuff. The only other question I was wondering about was where are the popular destinations for captives to be domiciled for European companies? Yeah. So traditionally, lots of European companies did use places like Bermuda, particularly. Bermuda is obviously a, a hugely popular home for US companies as well. And, and the Cayman Lines come into that category as well. But the EU has taken an increasingly, what's the right word, an increasingly kind of a skeptical look at the offshore jurisdictions and Bermuda and others have come off and on to its different lists in the past. So Luxembourg is Luxembourg and Dublin are the two places which have been very popular over the last 20 years for reinsurance captives particularly. Malta has often made a play to become a large captive domicile and it has got some very large captives there. Vodafone, which is one of our biggest telecommunications companies in the UK and is, is a multinational operating across Europe and Africa as well. They've got a very large captive, probably one of the largest captives in the world in Malta. And there's some large car companies that have captives in in Malta as well. So Dublin and Luxembourg are kind of the two go-to jurisdictions for European companies. But then the UK market has got a long history of using Guernsey and the Isle of Man, which are two islands, British overseas territories, Guernsey in the, in the channel between France and England and Isle of Man. I believe in the Irish Sea between England and Ireland. So they're very popular domiciles with UK PLCs, but also there's quite a few Asian companies that use those those centers as well. So Guernsey is the biggest domicile in Europe by captive number. And that's become as, because there's a lot of UK companies, as I said, and, and some others there. But then Dublin and Luxembourg are both being tradi- the traditional centers for, for European owned captives. Great, great. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, you certainly sound like you have the captive business covered. So <laughs> I, uh, I really appreciate your uh, taking time to uh, kind of give us the rundown here on, uh, on all things captives. And if any of my uh, listeners would like to catch up with your podcast going forward, the name of the podcast is Global Captive Podcast, right? And you can catch yep. that on pretty much any platform that people like to listen to their podcasts on, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, all the, all the usual good places for podcasts. And we're actually launching a new website next week. So depending on when this comes out, then the new website, globalcaptivepodcast.com, should be up. So do check us out. And yeah, I think hopefully it will have some value to your to your listeners who want to find out a bit more about the kind of the global market for, for captives. Excellent. I'm sure they will. And I look forward to that as well. And thank you very much. And we'll be talking soon. Cheers, Mike. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Brought to you by Key Strategies LLC, the US insurance and risk management recruitment specialists. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. And if you have any specific career-related questions, please post them or send an email directly to Mike at mtenenbaum at keystrategies.com. He may even answer your question on the show. When you subscribe, you'll also get notifications of when the next episode is available. Hope you join us next time.